Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, please. Romans 4, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through the end of the chapter today. Romans 4, 17 through 25. If you're using a pew Bible, open to page 1129. You'll arrive at that section of Romans chapter 4. This is our fourth message in our series on justification by faith alone. And it is the last look at Paul's exposition of sola fide from the life of the ancient patriarch Abraham. So, put on your sandals and go back in time with me 4,000 years. Abraham, or Abram as he was originally known, was a Bedouin priest, or a prince rather, Bedouin prince, who lived about 4,000 years ago in the land of Palestine. He had been called by God some years before that to leave his ancient homeland in the modern nation of Iraq and to sojourn, he along with his wife, in a new land, a promised land, the land of Palestine. God gave to Abram and his wife, Sarah, a promise, a promise that that land would be his inheritance. And in connection with that land came a promise that a great nation would come forth from the loins of this man, Abram. And in connection with the nation that would come forth from his loins would come forth the deliverer who would bless all the families of the earth. So Abram wandered through the land of Palestine. The Scripture tells us he grew wealthy during his wanderings. He accumulated large herds of livestock, silver, and gold. Yet in all of his riches, he lacked one thing that weighed heavily upon both his heart And his wives. They were rapidly growing old, and they remained childless. Imagine with me what it must have been like back on those warm nights when the caravans that carried the commerce to and from the land of Egypt would be passing through. And stopped to spend the night by one of Abraham's water wells. There the merchants would undoubtedly purchase food and and water and feed for their animals. And then they would want to drop by the tent of their benefactor and meet the man who had provided for them. To find out the latest gossip of things going on in the world. So they would sit around at night in Abram's tent, exchange pleasantries one with another, and the questions would inevitably come up. How old are you? Eighty-five. How long have you lived here? About ten years. What is your name? Abram, which means Exalted Father. 
Exalted Father. Wow. How many sons do you have? None. None. The humiliation of that routine as it played out month after month, year after year, must have weighed heavily on this man's heart. No doubt the servants overheard these conversations as they happened and they would speculate on what was the problem. Why no children? Was it Abraham who was sterile or was it his wife? Perhaps Abraham thought to himself, how can God's promise come true? Year after year he delays, but he is faithful. And I must continue to believe. This is the background, beloved, of Paul's final contrast here regarding the faith of Abraham. Faith contrasted with sight. I've provided for you an insert in your bulletin. You might want to fish that out and follow along here. Let me read the text and we can dive in together. I'm going to pick it up in verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist in hope against hope. He believed in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, also, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. As we have looked together at this lengthy section, really the lighter, latter part of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, we noted that there are five contrasts that are located in this section of Scripture that draw out the nature and the implications of faith as the sole means of justification before God. And we have been looking at that together over these last weeks so that we might understand how a person is made right before their Creator. We're looking at this last contrast, faith 
contrasted with sight together this morning in verses 17 and following. Now, verse 17 begins in your Bible, hopefully it's this way in your Bible, with a parenthesis. A parenthesis, it's an interruption of the thought. Paul has asserted at the end of verse 16 that Abraham is the father of us all. Do you see that? And then we have a, a parenthesis, and then the thought continues down in verse 17. He is the father of us all, skipping the parenthesis, in the sight of him whom he believed, even God. Paul is bringing Scripture to bear. This parenthesis, the beginning of verse 17, which is a citation of Genesis, chapter 17, verse 5, Paul brings to bear on his argument here in order to support his contention that Abraham is indeed the father of all believers. God originally spoke these words in the parenthesis to Abraham, as I said, back in chapter 17, verse 5 of Genesis, at the time he changed his name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, the father of many. In that, at that point, God reaffirmed his promise of descendants to Abraham. So Paul brings it to bear here into his argument. And what it does is it it uh, it helps support his contention at the end of verse 16 that Abraham is indeed the father of all believers. And it supports it by a direct citation from the word of God. Paul is saying that Abraham is the father of all believers as far as God is concerned, that's where it says in the sight of God there in verse 17. It's how God sees him. God sees Abraham as the father of all believers. And it doesn't matter what others think or how others see Abraham. It's only God's view that matters. After scripturally reinforcing this important point, Paul is now going to present to us our last contrast, faith and sight. And when he is going to do this, the reason he is going to do this is he needs and wants to give us a clear example of what kind of faith it is that justifies. He has been laboring away, beginning back in verse 27 of chapter 3, to say that it is faith, not this. It is faith, not this. In chapter 3, 27 to the end of the chapter, he says it is faith, not law-keeping. In verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4, he says it's faith, not works. In chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, he says it's faith, not circumcision. In chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, he says it's faith, not the law. So over and over and over again, he said, it's faith, not this. It's faith, not that. It's faith, not that. But what kind of faith is it? Is it any old faith? What kind of faith justifies? That's the last point that he wants to make. That's the last contrast that he's going to, going to draw. And so he's going to do it for us here in these remaining verses. He's going to give us a clear example of justifying faith. Abrahamic faith, if I can say it that way. All right. So what do you really want to look at with you this morning as we work through these verses is Abrahamic faith. What is it? What is Abrahamic faith? Well, first, Abrahamic faith is a reasonable faith because it rests in the character of God. That's the message of verse 17. Abrahamic faith is a reasonable faith. Because it rests in the character of God. 
Now, there are many today who attempt to define faith as some sort of existential leap into the darkness, right? Just a a blind step into nothingness. That's what they would call faith. Some sort of purely subjective feeling that some people have with no rational basis at all. This often comes to us in the false dichotomy of the world that says, well, we have science and we have faith, right? Science is all about what we know. Faith is all about what we believe. They've created this false dichotomy. But biblical faith is not a blind leap into the dark. It is a confident resting upon a personal God who is both able and active in the affairs of men. Abrahamic faith, justifying faith, is a reasonable faith because it rests in this, the character of this God. Verse 17, as it is written, A father of many nations I have made you in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. God made a promise to Abraham originally in Genesis chapter 12, repeated again in Genesis 15, repeated again in Genesis 17, which is cited here, a father of many nations I have made you. Implicit in that promise that God had made to Abraham is a statement about God's sovereignty. A statement about His sovereignty. And it was that statement about God's sovereignty that made Abraham's faith not a wild leap into the dark, but a very, very reasonable hope. So God, or Paul rather, describes God's sovereignty here, the sovereign God in whom Abraham believed. And he he does it in the terms of two really amazing characteristics here in verse 17. First, he says that it is God who gives life to the dead. Do you see that? The second characteristic is that it is God who calls into being that which does not exist. These are characteristics, amazing characteristics of the sovereignty of God. He gives life to the dead, the first one. Now, in context here, Paul's primary reference to God giving life to the dead has to be overcoming the deadness of Abraham and Sarah's childlessness, right? Verse 19, where it says that his own body now is good as dead, right? The deadness of Sarah's womb. So contextually, the first understanding of Paul's statement here where he brings this to bear is that the God who overcomes or gives life to the dead gives life to the, those that are reproductively dead. But beyond that, there is in the background also a statement about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, right? He says, for our sake also, whom whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. So Paul has brought that into this context as well. What's the point? The point is, is that the power of God that overcomes the infertility of Abraham and Sarah is the same power that raises Jesus Christ from the dead. The power of God that brings forth the promised heir From the dead womb of Sarah is the same powerful God who raised His own Son from the dead. Now, we live in a remarkable time. It's a time when medical discoveries and procedures have made tremendous progress in helping childless couples to conceive and and bear a child. 
But the fact still remains that life is a gift from God. And the whole wondrous process of conception and birth still remains elusive. It is beyond the reach of mere mortals. Especially when the father is a hundred years old and the first time mother is ninety. As God says to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter one, verse five, I formed you in the womb. The gift of life is the gift of God. In order for Sarah to conceive the promised child Isaac by Abraham, God was going to have to sovereignly intervene and grant life to their dead bodies. And Abraham believed that God could and would do such a thing. It's fascinating to me, by the way, just a a by the way here. When God did intervene to give life to Abraham's dead body, he evidently did it in such a magnificent way, returned his virility with, with such power that even 40 years later, after Sarah had died, Abraham took a wife again, Keturah, and he fathered six more sons through her. So when God intervened in Abraham's life, He intervened in a powerful way. God gives life to the dead. Secondly, He creates ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing. It says here in verse 17, God calls into being that which does not exist. The word call, kaleo in the Greek, it it does not mean to describe something or designate something. You know, we call this the worship center. We're describing it. We're designating it. That's not the point. What it means here is to summon something into being, to summon it or call it into being. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 13 says, surely my hand founded the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens when I call to them and they stand together. God summons into being that which does not exist. You know, only God can do this. Only God can create something from nothing by summoning it into existence. Isn't that true? Even the most creative of mere mortals can only form and fashion from pre-existing materials. I read this story on the internet this week. I thought I'd share it with you. You might like it. It says, One day a group of scientists got together and decided that a man had, that man had come a long way and no longer needed God. So they picked one scientist to go and tell him that they were done with him. The scientist walked up to God and said, God, we've decided that we no longer need you. We're to the point that we can clone people and do many miraculous things. So why don't you just go on and get lost? God listened very patiently and kindly to the man. And after the scientist was done talking, God said, very well, how about this? Let's say we have a man making contest to which the scientist replied. "Okay, great. But God added, now we're going to do this just like I did it back in the old days with Adam. The scientist said, sure, no problem. And he bent down and grabbed himself a handful of dirt. And God just looked at him and said, no, 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 no. You go get your own dirt. (laughs) Right? 
Only God has the ability to summon into existence by His spoken Word. It is an aspect of His sovereignty and it, it's demonstrated really in, in this context here in the sentence in verse 17, a father of many nations, I have made you. He's talking to a, to a guy who doesn't have any kids and to a wife who cannot conceive. And yet he said, I have made you a father of many nations. There will be no child born to this couple for over a year. And in the mind of God, Isaac is absolutely real. Because the Sovereign One summons him into existence. Let me try to illustrate this whole issue of a reasonable faith because of the reliability of the one in whom we place it. If, if you were to have a yard sale, perish the thought, but if you were to have a yard sale and to sell something for $100, and two people were to come up and want to buy it from you, the first one has a $100 bill in his hand, and the other one has his open checkbook. Which person would you be most likely to sell the item to? They're both offering you a piece of paper, right? They're both just offering you a piece of paper. One is a check. That's a piece of paper. The other is a $100 bill. That's a piece of paper. Why is one piece of paper more trustworthy, more reliable than the other? The answer lies in that, by the way, in the strength and character of the individual that stands behind the piece of paper. Isn't that true? For one, you are having to rely upon a person you don't know that that check's going to be good. For the other, you are relying upon the strength and integrity of the United States Treasury. And so you take the $100 bill, right? So it is with God's promise. What makes God's promise reasonable? It is the strength and character of the one who makes the promise. The Scriptures specifically tell us God is the one who justifies and adopts us as His children. Not based on our good works and not based on a combination of faith plus works, but by faith alone. We exercise Abrahamic faith when we trust in God's promise to charge all of our guilt to Jesus Christ punished on that cross and to credit all of His righteousness to us that we might stand enrobed in His righteousness, perfect in the sight of the Beloved. Now, your family and friends may portray your Christian faith as wishful thinking. Or worse, they may call it a dangerous delusion. And they would be absolutely right were it not for the person who made the promise to you. It is the strength and character of God, unimpeachable in His character. He both gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Secondly, Abrahamic faith is not just a reasonable faith, 
but it is a resilient faith because it resists temptation to disbelieve. Abrahamic faith is a reasonable faith and it is a resilient faith. Resilient. Quote, the property of a material that enables it to resume its original shape or position after being bent, stretched or compressed. Now, if that doesn't describe Abraham's life, right? Bent, stretched and compressed. Yet it always bounced back. It is a resilient faith. Paul is going to describe his faith here really in terms of four characteristics that together paint a resilient faith. That's why I call it that. You can see them beginning in verse 18. That first characteristic is that his faith was against hope. It was against hope. Verse 18. In hope against hope, he believed. In order that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Paul's point here is that Abraham was continuing to believe in God long after the time when human hope had expired. It's no longer possible for him to go on hoping. The outermost limit of hope had been reached. There's nothing beyond. And yet Abraham continues to hope. He continues to hope. When God made the promise in Genesis 15, verse 5 of the descendants, God then waited until it was physically impossible for this couple to have children. And then God appeared to him again in Genesis 17 and verse 5 and repeated the same promise. Such is God's timing, right? Abraham's faith is essentially unchanged. It's the same faith from Genesis 15 to Genesis 17, but the circumstances surrounding it have now dramatically changed. Human hope, as it were, had come and gone 14 years before. But Abraham continues to believe. In fact, he had grown defiant in his belief. How do you like that, huh? I'm now enlisting the word defiant in a positive way. Abraham had a defiant belief. It defied all human calculations, all human probabilities, all human expectations. He clung tenaciously to God. It was against hope. Secondly, it was in spite of the circumstances. In spite of the circumstances, verse 19, and without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Abraham's almost 100 years old at this point. Sarah is 90. Now, 14 years earlier, Abraham had fathered a child through Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. But sometime in the intervening years, he had evidently lost his ability to produce a child. Furthermore, his wife, Sarah, had been barren all of her life. She had never produced a child. These were undeniable realities. 
And look at verse 19 again. They hadn't gone unnoticed by Abraham. You see, he says he contemplated his own body. That means he thought hard about it. He thought deeply about it. He didn't just blow it off. He was fully aware of the physical realities, which is she has never borne a child and I can no longer do this. From a human perspective, it is now impossible. Absolutely impossible. He and his wife will never have a child, period. But that fact doesn't cause his faith to fail, right? Or to weaken. It's interesting, in the narrative of Genesis, we we read that uh, when God told Abraham that his 90-year-old wife Sarah is going to bear a son, that he falls to the ground laughing, right? Genesis 17, verse 17. Some say this is a departure of faith for him, but I don't think so. I think what it is is that the idea just struck him as ridiculous. Okay? It just struck him as ridiculous. But he believed it anyway. A cute story. I was talking with an older couple from this church last week, and, and they were telling me this funny story. The, uh, the wife was, uh, this part's not funny, but the, the wife was having some trouble with her hip, and so she needed to go to the hospital. So she went down to San Antonio Hospital, and as they pulled their car up near the curb, the uh, hospital people came out with a wheelchair to get her and to wheel her in so she could have an x-ray. And the, the funny part of the story is, is that the chair they placed her in on the back had the words stenciled maternity right across the back of the wheelchair. <laughs> and her husband thought it was so funny uh, that he took a picture of it and, <laughs> and sent it to me. And it is pretty funny to see a white-haired lady sitting in a wheelchair that says maternity across the back. Okay? We all find that amusing, right? Why? What makes that funny? It's the incongruity of it all, isn't it? The reality that children are born to younger women. Children are not born to women that are, in, you know, later in life. Whoa. funny not that the other thing's funny resilient faith just a resilient faith it's against hope it's in spite of the circumstances third it's unwavering it's unwavering verse 20 yet with respect to the promise of god he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith giving glory to god paul reintroduces the thought of the promise here do you see it with respect to the promise of God. What Paul is doing for us here is he's making clear that the faith he wants us to emulate here is not just some kind of a, of a embracing of an impossibility just because it's impossible. What he wants us to see here is that, that it is a faith that is wholly based upon and controlled by the Word of God. It is an unwavering faith because it is grounded in the veracity of the Word of God. It is God's Word. And Paul says Abraham's faith didn't waver in the face of that, but grew stronger. Grew stronger. This word, waver, diakrino in the Greek, and it, it just means double-minded. 
He was not double-minded. In fact, it's translated that way over in James 1.6, a double-minded man. Abraham, Paul says, was not double-minded. That is, he didn't want to go one way and, you know, one of them wants, part of him wants to go one way and part of him wants to go the other way, okay? He wanted to go one way and one way only. That is, that he wanted to, to continue to follow and embrace and grab a hold of with all that he had, the Word of God, the promise that had been given him. The result of doing that is that his faith continued to grow stronger. Giving glory to God. God is glorified, by the way, when a person acknowledges God's truthfulness and submits to God's authority. That's when he's glorified. When we acknowledge his truthfulness and we submit to his authority. And isn't that what Abraham's doing? He is acknowledging the truthfulness. Hey, this promise was made back in Genesis 12. And it's reaffirmed in Genesis 15. And it's reaffirmed in Genesis 17. And I am on board with it. I am clinging tenaciously to it. In spite of all of what I see and know. Abraham glorified God. By acknowledging God's truthfulness and submitting to God's authority. How did he submit to God's authority? Well, in Genesis 17, he circumcised himself and his son, Ishmael. And Isaac had not even been conceived yet. That is, he, he took the sign of the covenant that God had made with him. He took it into his own flesh. The flesh that is now dead. And he circumcised himself, believing that the heir would come as God had promised. So he acted in faith and circumcised himself and his family. It's an unwavering faith. Fourth, it's fully assured. Right? Verse 21, being fully assured that what he, that is God, had promised, he was able also to perform. Abraham had come to a place of full Assurance that he was fully persuaded that God is able and willing and will do what he says he'll do. His confidence rested in God's strength. Not man. Commentator Doug Moo says, I quote, Abraham's faith was a leap, but not into the dark, but from the evidence of his senses into the security of God's word and promise. Like that. Abraham did throw himself onto, not the dark, onto God. He threw himself onto God. This is the resilient faith. Against hope, in spite of circumstances, unwavering, fully assured. But there are obstacles to justifying faith that we face, aren't there? Just a few of them. Let me run them by you. See what you think. One obstacle that people put forward is that, is that people don't look any different immediately before and after they've been justified. So how do I know it will work? I mean, how do I know that by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone that I will be made right with God? You don't look any different before and after. There's no, you know, nothing come marked on your forehead or nothing like that. You just don't know. How do I know? The answer is you have to take God at His word. 
you have to take God at his word. God has diagnosed your problem. That is sin. And that certainly corresponds to reality, doesn't it? God's solution is Christ. That corresponds to reality, too. Some people claim that to believe, they claim they believe, but they don't act any different. So is justifying faith then really just a delusion? Is that what it is? I mean, I've got these people who say they're justified, say they're saved, they say they're Christians, and they don't act any different than anybody else. What am I to make of that? Scripture is very, very clear. Exceedingly clear. Justification by faith alone necessarily produces works of righteousness in those who have exercised saving faith. If there is no changed life, there is no justifying faith. Period. So my answer to the objection that people claim they believe, but they don't act any differently before or after is, if they do not change, they have not believed. Regardless of what they say, regardless of what they've done. Here's another. It's easy to see my sin and believe that I'm a sinner. It's hard to believe that God actually loves me and has forgiven my sin because of what Christ did. That's an obstacle to justifying faith. My answer to such a person is spend time in the Word of God and get to know your Savior. As you get to know Him, you will know the veracity of His Word and His character as unimpeachable. And that will give you victory over that struggle. For another, it's hard to come before God when all I can see is my sin and my failures. The answer is, is that you must believe with Abrahamic-like faith that God has fully accepted you not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is and what He has done. Your entrance into the holy is not yourself naked. It is yourself clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's your entrance. That's how you come boldly before the throne. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself. Abrahamic faith is a reasonable faith. It is a resilient faith. And last, it is a relevant faith. It is a relevant faith because it rightly relates us to Abraham's God. Verses 22 to the end of the chapter. If anything is clear, it is that Abraham walked by faith and not by sight, right? He believed God's word in spite of the multitude of human reasons not to do so. So how does this lesson from 4,000 years ago relate to me today? How is it relevant to me today? That's what Paul's going to take up an answer here in these last 
few verses. He does it beginning in verse 22. He says, therefore, also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to stop and ask yourself, what is it therefore? Okay, it tends to be a summary statement. So it is summarizing what has gone before and is drawing a conclusion from it. So what is the conclusion that Paul is drawing here in verse 24? There's really a question, I guess, that would stand behind it. Maybe I should put it that way is why did Abraham's faith justify? Why did Abraham's faith justify? Because that's what the the back of the verse really reminds us. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. It is a reference to his faith. His faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Why? The answer is because it was a reasonable faith and it was a resilient faith. It is the essence of saving faith. Paul has just been clearly laying that out for us. So he gets to verse 22 and he says, therefore, because it's a reasonable faith, because it's a resilient faith, therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. You see that? Paul's pulling the package together. But he's not going to leave it there. Because in verse 23, he's going to now make application of that to you and I. Now, not for our sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. God caused Moses to record these events in Genesis of Abraham's life for the purpose of the believers in later generations to be able to read them and know something and understand something about what it means to be made right with God through faith. It calls our attention to that reality. How is a sinner made right before God? Go back to Abraham and see. So not for Abraham's sake was it just written, not for his alone, but it was written for us. Written for those in the first century that Paul's writing to in Rome and written for us here in Upland in the 21st century. Okay, it's equally applicable. Abraham is the pattern. Abraham is the leader of all who believe. Verse 12, those who follow in the steps of Abraham. He is the pattern for us. He is the leader. Uh, the leader. So when someone believes with his kind of faith, with Abrahamic-like faith, then they are justified with God in the same way that Abraham was justified. It is reckoned to them. Now, we are those who believe in God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Verse 24, right? Abraham's faith was somewhat different. Not in kind, but in content. Abraham believed in the same God that we believe in. But the promise that Abraham believed is a different promise than ours. His was a seed promise. Ours is a full-blown promise. Abraham looked forward with eyes of faith to the promise of God that the Deliverer would come through his loins. He was looking for the Deliverer. We look backwards. We look backwards, don't we? To the Deliverer who came. But we embrace Him in the same way, with the same tenacious faith that Abraham showed. We believe in God who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. 
Jesus, who was delivered up because of our transgression, Paul says, and was raised up because of our justification. This verse 25 is perhaps a piece of an old Christian hymn or creed. There's a good chance of that. What it does is in kind of parallel form, it makes two very important statements that kind of wind up Paul's presentation here of justification by faith alone. Where it says Christ was delivered up because of our transgressions. That is speaking to the imputation or the placing upon Jesus Christ of all of our sin. It's the same kind of language, by the way, that you find in Isaiah 53, verse 6. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was delivered up because of our transgressions and He was raised up because of our justification. What does that mean? What Paul is talking about here is the fact that Jesus Himself was a righteous man. If He had remained in the grave, we would have no proof, no assurance, no confidence that his, that his death was acceptable before God. Our only conclusion could be that He died for His own sin. But because God raised Him from the dead, God put the exclamation point on His life and said, this was indeed a righteous man. The grave could not hold Him. And because He is a righteous man, his righteousness is imputed or laid to our account. Our iniquity to Him because of our transgressions. His righteousness to us raised because of our justification. Let me ask you a question. Do you have Abraham-ic faith? Abraham-like faith? Do you? Is that the kind of faith you have? Do you believe God can make you clean? Do you believe that God can and will and wants to forgive all of your sin? All the past, all the present, and all the future. Do you believe that? And all because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you want to know for sure? Do you want to know for sure that you have eternal life? You can. You can. If you will cling to Abraham's God with Abrahamic faith. Faith that is both reasonable, resilient, and relevant. We would love to talk with you this morning. If something that's been said here is whirling around in your mind. If you came in here this morning and you're kind of were kind of confused and weren't really sure what was going on and Maybe now you're even more confused. Maybe you want to just have somebody to pray with you. There's no greater issue in all the world than how do you stand before God? How is a man made right with his Creator? There's no more important question than that.
If that's not settled in your mind this morning, then don't leave without getting it settled. We have some folks that will be over here by this lighted cross. We just ask you to come to the cross. We'll open the Bible with you and answer your questions, explain to you more carefully the way of salvation. That you might leave this place this morning with Abrahamic faith that would be reckoned to you as righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father, nothing in our hands we bring, only to the cross of Christ we cling. It is what He has done for us on that cross that assures us that our sin has been dealt with once and for all. And that our righteous standing before You has now been established. We have been reconciled back to our Creator. Thank You for such an amazing gift, Lord. Thank You that it is all by grace and not by works in any way, shape, or form. Because now we know that it is sure. It is true. May You apply the truth of this passage to our hearts today. For those who do know You, Father, strengthen our faith as events and circumstances of life come along and seek to unsettle it. For those who do not know You, may You grant them Your mercy today that they too might come to believe. We pray in the name of the One who gave His life for us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.